I would draw your attention to God's holy word found in Ephesians 4 this morning. I would like to read the whole chapter, but I think we'll read down through verse 16. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Thankful that we have God's Word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who ascended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this opportunity that we have yet again to come before You and to look to Your Word. Lord, to be united as one. Lord, individuals that have been brought together and united in You, one body. Lord, give us grace that we might walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Lord, open your word this morning to us. Renew a right spirit within us. Lord, that we might have our chief desire to be your glory and your honor and that we might live lives that would point others towards you. 
Lord, we thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit here amongst us this morning. Lord, may he help us. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Any of you been to a bookstore lately? Don't go to as many of them as we used to, right? But if you walk into any bookstore, I've been in Barnes & Noble lately, and I've also been in Reformation Heritage, there's a big difference. Huge difference. But you walk into about any bookstore today, and you'll see a very large section of books, often referred to as the self-help section. Shelves are, ab shelves are absolutely full of these books for those seeking to make a change to help be a better you, including some which have the look of having some sort of tie to Christianity. The self-help book industry in 2020 was worth approximately $10.5 billion. And it's expected to rise to $14 billion by 2025. One of the fastest growing book genres in the United States in 2021, I read that they had a record-breaking year, sales up approximately 20%. And in January of 2021, in the first week of January, sales hit 17.1 million books. That's not dollars. That's books. Titles include Think and Grow Rich, 80 million copies. You Can Heal Your Life. Wow. You Can Heal Your Life, 50 million copies sold. In the tried and true classic, Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale. I think that's where Robert Schuller got a lot of his theology from. 20 million copies. 20 million copies. Just think positively and it can be yours. Health, wealth, and prosperity. Go into your normal Christian bookstore, and unfortunately things aren't very much different. Shelved or lined with self-help pop psychology with a seeming tie to biblical precepts. Joyce Myers, Joel Olstein type books seem to dominate in this arena. There are obvious exceptions to this. We mentioned Reformation Heritage, Cumberland uh, Valley Bible Bookstore, Banner of Truth has a bookstore, uh, Grace Church has a bookstore. There, there are some exceptions to this. You walk into Reformation, Reformation Heritage, you won't see any of this stuff. None of it. What's wrong with these books? Well, by and large, these books seek to deal with the symptoms of the problem without diagnosing the actual condition that is plaguing the reader. They seek to deal with fallen man with principles 
that have their treatment plan, plan founded and governed by the thoughts and symptoms of a fallen world. They reject that biblical and true diagnosis of the problem, the disease, sin, that lies at the heart of what causes the need for help. And the treatment is most often in these books to build up self and to, to achieve victory or to purify the life. The problem is they're trying to purify their life from a poisoned well. You cannot wash and make clean in water that is already full of deadly toxin. The result may appear to be initially effective, but the end result is death. And in the case of what we are talking about from a biblical perspective, this is not dealing with just the physical life and physical death. This is dealing with also spiritual death and eternal death. I'm not saying that every single thing in these books is, is bad. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying everything is negative, but what I'm seeking to point out this morning is that we have something far more important than self-help for my career or my finances. There are eternal things that must be considered and must be placed over and above these other things. There is a problem far greater than how I'm going to achieve success in my personal life. How to become popular or well-liked. How to achieve financial success and so on and so forth. I can do and achieve all these things and still perish in my sin. I can achieve success. I can find and found and, and build up successful companies. I can store up treasures and amass all kinds of material possessions. And I will lose it all on the day that I die. And I would stand... If I am not right with God, I would stand before Almighty God, naked and destitute of all of those things, with no covering at all for my sin. Self-help is not the answer. Our help must come from above. If you want to turn to Psalm 121, I'm going to read Psalm 121. Here... It's where our help comes from. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made the heaven and the earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. 
Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, not from me. Is this not what the Apostle Paul has been showing us throughout all of these first three chapters of Ephesians? God is our helper. He is the source of our salvation. He is the giver of our life in Christ. Why has he been spending these last three chapters dealing with these mighty doctrines of God? These amazing gifts and help from the plans and purposes of God. Is it all just so we have some knowledge and some insight into these great and mysterious things? Or is it that we can draw some application and practical implications from this abundantly rich theology that he has laid out before us in chapters 1 through 3? Paul here at the start of chapter 4 makes a pivot of sorts. He isn't moving away from his high theology or doctrine that he has been inspired by the Spirit to make known to us. He doesn't leave those things behind, but he does what he's been doing all along and he just keeps on building and building on it. He takes that doctrine, that theology that he's He's presented to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he uses it as an anchor or as a base and begins to build and to draw out the practical implications of this help from above. Implications of the grace that he has bestowed on us through his choosing us, through his adopting us, through his reconciliation, his redemption of us, through the promises of inheritance that we see in Ephesians. It's already given to us. And there is a fullness yet to come. And through the giving of life when we were dead in sin. These things constitute true help from above. Eternal solutions for eternal problems. Purification of the well, if we take it back to what I said before. This is what happens when we are brought from death to life. The regenerative call of God through the Spirit, bringing that which was dead to life, making them a new creature, a new creation. Here is true help. Here is help from above. Help for the cure, for the need that we truly have. God alone has the power of creation. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we've said this, we've quoted this before, and we'll quote it many times again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Paul here begins to make this shift, not away from theology again, but begins to draw out the implications of this theology, the knowledge of who God is and what He has done and what flows out of that knowledge being given to us when we are made into new creatures. Paul is stating in light of the fact that these Christians that he is writing to and us 
have been called by a sovereign God to salvation, to reconciliation. They have been initiated into a new lifestyle that they may reflect the exceeding riches of His grace. Or as he puts it in Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And Paul, in this first verse here, is not saying that he would just like to see the Christians walk worthy. He is urging them. He is pleading with them. He is begging them to walk worthy of the calling to which they have been called. Paul is once again, we've talked about this before, but Paul is once again, he's not seeking anything for himself. He's a prisoner. He's in Rome, a prisoner for the gospel, a prisoner of the Lord, suffering for the purpose and the plan of God, And if we go back to verse 13 of chapter 3, he says even to those who who are his hearers, his listeners, his readers, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. He understands that there's a purpose in what God has called him to do. But Paul is not even asking for prayer for himself in his current state of imprisonment. He doesn't even ask for, his, for prayer for himself until we get to Ephesians 6, verse 19. The very end of this epistle. He says, And also for me that words may be given to me in, the, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Even then, What is his prayer for? It's so that he may boldly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's in prison. He is suffering. But his prayer is nothing more. And he's asking for nothing more in their prayers than pray for me that I may boldly proclaim the word of God. Paul in his flesh would be stating something very different, as you or I would if we were what Paul was. In his flesh, he would be saying, I deserve more than this. Look how I was raised. I'm a Pharisee. I was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. I deserve to be taken out of this prison and put on a high pedestal in the temple in the synagogues, and be able to look down and teach you who have no knowledge. But Paul is not saying this. Because the grace of God worked so powerfully in his life that he would conduct himself worthy of the calling to which he has been called. Humble, esteeming others better than himself. What did he call himself? The chief of sinners. Humble. This is what grace has wrought in the heart of the apostle. So that his prayer, 
his earnest desire for those who would hear this letter would be his burden is that those who the Lord has called with this effectual call might walk, might conduct themselves worthy of their calling to which they have been called, worthy of the calling that they have received. Have you ever heard or maybe yourself stated something like this? Maybe of the president or someone in a high position. That was so unbecoming of them. That is inappropriate for such a one as this. Or that is ill-suited to a person of their station. Have you ever heard that? I know I've said this. What we are saying is that the person is living or acting in a way that doesn't suit their position. We have a president right now who is often, more often than not, like a babbling child. Unfit for the profession or unbecoming of his office. There is a fitness, a suitable walk to a given position, an occupation or a, or a station. We would not want the soldier to fall asleep on guard duty, would we? If I get in a plane, I don't want the pilot to be drunk at the stick. They must walk according to their position. Well, let me ask you this morning and ask myself, what are we as children of God? Are we walking? Does our walk measure up to that which we, to which we have been called? Do we conduct ourselves in a way that reflects our master and our calling? Do we show that we are his workmanship? I fear we so far so often fall so far short of this. And that's why Paul here urges, he begs them to walk in such a way that they might reflect that which they have been given. That which they have been granted, brought into the family, made sons, heirs of the Father. No longer to walk in filth and rags. Do you remember the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son? Hungry, and he had nothing, didn't he? In a far distant country. Dressed in rags and repented, came to himself, repented, and went back to his father. Look with me at Luke 15. Luke 15, verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now listen to this. But the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and bring a ring, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. There's no more reason for the son to slop around in the mud with the pigs. Desire to have the food which the pigs eat. The father has embraced his children. Clothe them in the best robe. Is there a better robe than Christ's righteousness? Clothe them in the best robe. His authority as a son, a ring has been given to him. The authority of the father belongs to his children. And he has shod his children's feet, taking away the rund and the worn covering of their creatureliness and shod their feet with shoes fit for his children. Now, what does Paul say? Walk worthy. Walk worthy. It is now our responsibility, and Paul is urging us to walk according to this responsibility in light of all that he has shown us. To behave in a manner in which adopted children of the Father should be expected to conduct themselves. We are to believe his word to trust in what He has promised and live according to His revealed will for us as His children. You see what a privilege we have. In Ephesians 3, verse 12, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. To come to our Father. What a privilege. Now Paul says walk worthy of that which you've been given. Well, what does this look like? Mention a few examples here from the Old Testament. Do you remember in the book of Esther? Esther had neither a father or a mother, but Esther was being brought up by a Jew named Mordecai from the tribe of Benjamin. Esther was the daughter of Mordecai's uncle, and he had become as like, like a father to, to Esther. And during all that took place in the book of Esther, we have recounted for us that there was an evil man named Haman. Or, or Haman. He was promoted over all the other officials, and, and all the king's servants bowed down to Haman and paid homage to Haman, as the king had commanded. But Mordecai... Wouldn't bow down. He wouldn't do it. And so they asked him, Why are you not doing what is ordered by the king? And Mordecai said, I, his, his sole response, I am a Jew. I'm a Jew. It was a simple statement. It was unbecoming of a Jew to bow down to this man. Mordecai 
was a member of the family of God. Called and chosen as an Israelite, and he walked worthy of that to which he had been called. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Was it not the same with them? Did the weight of their calling by God not so overpower them that they would deny the most powerful king in the earth, Nebuchadnezzar? Despite the fear of being thrown into the furnace? We see the same thing in Joseph when he was in Potiphar's house and dealing with Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife would have drawn him into sinning, but he walked worthy of his calling and said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, they all knew something. They all had experienced something. They knew what grace had been given to them. And Paul urges us in light of the knowledge of who we now are. Just think back to the first three chapters of Ephesians. In light of what you've been given. In light of being chosen before the foundation of the world. This is not some Johnny-come-lately story. This extends back to eternity where God, before the foundation of the world, chose a people and placed them in the Son. Is that not a most humbling fact? In light of that, in everything else that Paul tells us about these great doctrines and, 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 and purposes and plans and actions of an almighty, holy God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all in unity together accomplishing that which they purposed in our lives. In light of that, walk worthy of that which wherein you've been called. Walk worthy of the calling. And he urges us to this end. We'll, we'll skip over verse 2 for now and see to what end Paul urges us to walk worthy. In verse 3 we read, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul longs to see unity among believers. Didn't we deal with this in Ephesians 2? The unity of Jew and Gentile. Uh, uh, two groups of people that there was... There was no unity between them. Hostile, at enmity with each other. And Paul says that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Longing to see unity among believers. It is important that we see that this is not unity in the Spirit. As in like-mindedness. That is a part of it. But that is not the whole of it. This is the unity of the Spirit. There is a difference. It is of the Spirit that we have this unity. 
There is something far more important and something far greater in each of us that makes this a reality. It is unity made possible by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the lives of each and every believer. Their life, their source of life is the same in every believer. And it draws us together. And it makes of people that were scattered, people that were at odds with each other, this spirit makes us family. It's much stronger than a family with earthly bonds. It's, it's like living in a country. See if we can... make an analogy for this. It's like living in a country that is under communist rule and under a wicked, wicked, evil tyrant. And, and you, you're living in this country and you've been led to see the wickedness and the evil in this country and its ruler. You've renounced your citizenship. You've, you've given up your citizenship to this country for a far better country with a gracious and honorable ruler, but you still live in this wicked land. But everything about who you are has changed. You've, you've had this knowledge of what you were in this country that you're in, it's been revealed to you how wicked and how evil this is. And you've been given, as it were, a new life. New loves. Things that you cherish that you never knew about before. Speak a new language. You live by new customs. Under new authority. But you're still surrounded by those things that are opposed to you in this new life, this, this, these things that you now cherish. Would there not be great joy then in unity to find another who also had these things revealed to themselves? To find another who had this newness of life given to them. Would there not be an eagerness to maintain a relationship with Him? Would there not be love for that one? Kinship, fellowship, joy to be in their presence. Would it not be important to maintain the bond of peace with them? And as more and more enter into this understanding and this, this new life, this new citizenship, new loves, new longings, being awakened to this new life, would it not be imperative to maintain the unity and bond of peace with all these 
You see, this is the bond. This is the unity that we have in and through the author of these things. It is the work of the Spirit. He is the author of these things. And it's through Him that we have this miraculous and mystical bond with other believers. Because He indwells them as well. There is something that draws us close to other believers. Is there not? Have you ever fellowshiped with someone that you had previously never met? And you just, you just have this bond. There's something there that unites you. Something otherworldly that seems to be a bond between you and to unite you to them. Hearts knit together. Brothers and sisters, this is the unity of the Spirit. We have a living union with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. And on top of that, we also have a living union one to another. We are brothers and sisters according to the plan and purpose of Almighty God. Redeemed, blood-bought sons and daughters of God by the Son and indwelt each and every one of us who have been regenerated, indwelt with the Holy Spirit Himself. Being built together according to Ephesians 2.22 in Him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Should there be unity? Should, be, should there be a bond of peace? God forbid if there be anything but that. Well, how is this unity maintained? I believe for us to see how this unity and bond of peace is to be maintained and strengthened, we must now go back to verse 2. Ephesians 4.2 tells us, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Are these three or four things, if you take the bearing with one another in love, to be a, a separate from the other three? But are these things born out of that which is natural to us? Are they born out of natural man? Are they born out of the fallen heart of man? <clears throat> is this something we can truly attain with self-help? I would suggest to you this morning that these things are fruits of the Spirit, which enable us to maintain unity and a bond of peace. These things are not attainable through self-help, but must be born from above by the Spirit of God who dwells in our hearts. By being united to Christ, by being in Him. John 15.5 tells us that Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. 
pretty simple, isn't it? That's a pretty profound statement in simple terms. You can't do anything apart from him. Nothing. Nothing at all. John 15, 16. God said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and, uh, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask in the, the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Does this not match perfectly with the doctrine and the theology that Paul has been laying out for us throughout this epistle? It is now that he's starting to deal with what Christ has appointed us to do. God has chosen us. What did, what did we say back in, in verse 10 of chapter 2? Paul says for us, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Walk worthy. Look with me at Galatians 5. Turn with me to Galatians 5. I want us to look at what the Apostle Paul tells us in another one of his epistles. We see a contrast here in Galatians 5. And one I think we can use to kind of describe this self-help versus help from above. As Paul calls it, fruits of the flesh versus fruits of the Spirit. Look with me at Galatians 5 verse 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How does the flesh and the fruits of self-help or the fruits of the flesh achieve unity? Look again. Look again at what Paul tells us in Galatians are the fruits of the flesh and what they produce. Enmity. Does enmity produce unity? Strife. You ever seen unity come out of strife? Rivalries. Dissensions. Divisions. Does this sound anything like unity? Or it's the opposite of unity. Oh, well, look at, look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now let me ask you, does that, which, that fruit which is born from above, that help from above, do the fruits of the Spirit produce unity and peace? One of them is peace. Love? What does our text in Ephesians say? with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience, bearing one another in love. Now listen to what the fruits of the Spirit are. Love, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, all these things. What does our text tell us? Humility. Verse 2 of Ephesians 4. Humility. Philippians, another one of Paul's letters, Philippians 2, 3 through 8, says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the cross." Counting others greater than ourselves. Not puffing up or seeking to draw attention to ourselves. Those things come from the flesh. Unity will not exist in the presence of proud hearts. In the presence of haughty hearts or self-conceit. They won't. Paul tells us to approach one another with Humility. And then gentleness or meekness, if your translation describes it that way, translates it that way. Gentleness. Second Timothy two, twenty-two through twenty-six. Paul says to Timothy, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps... Paul tells Timothy, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Gentleness. Speaking of our Lord in the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 11, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arm. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Our Savior was not a weak Savior. But He was meek. He dealt with us with gentleness. He said in Matthew eleven twenty 
28 through 30. Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He has power beyond what our minds can even begin to comprehend. He's God. But He dealt kindly with His people. And we are to be as He is with one another. We are not winning a fight when we deal with other believers. We're not seeking to overpower them or to deal blows of knowledge or beat them over the head with what has been revealed to us because it's been revealed to us by the grace of God. We're to be gentle with the flock and fellow children of God. There's plenty of fighting to do with the world. I don't for a second, and please don't misunderstand me, I don't for a second say that we should not be contending for the faith, even with other Christians. But how we do it is important. If we're dealing with fellow brothers and sisters, fellow children of God, then we must come before each other with gentleness. And before our time completely runs out, Paul says with patience, patience, bearing with one another in love. I wish I had more patience. Oh, to be patient. To be long-suffering with others. As God is long-suffering with us. Listen to how one commentator puts this. And remember, we are all a member of one church. We may be joined as members of a local body, and I I believe wholeheartedly in local membership of churches. But in the greater scheme of things, we are all members of the same body. The body of Christ. The church of which Christ is the head. We are all one. But the commentator said the root meaning of patience is the idea of being long-souled. Long-souled. The church is a fellowship of saved but not yet perfect sinners. We all battle with indwelling sin. We all are prone to disappoint and even fail one another, sometimes badly. We therefore greatly need the Christ-like grace of patience with one another. All of these things, humility, gentleness, and patience, all of these things are put into context, I believe, in the last phrase of verse 2, bearing with one another in love. There's a verse we all know very, very well. 
but I fear that many times we ignore in our daily walk. The great love chapter, as it's known, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. I wish we could go on and look at the next few verses this morning, but we don't have time. I've got to be drawing this to a close this morning, but I want you to think of of this in, in this way for us as believers. Ian Hamilton said, in such gospel soil, in reference to these verses, humility, patience, gentleness, love, in such gospel soil, the church's unity takes root and grows. I couldn't agree with Ian Hamilton more. In the fertile soil of humility, gentleness, patience, and love, the unity of the church is promoted by the very author of these graces. They are His fruits, the fruits of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who has authored them in our lives. It is in this fertile soil prepared by the Spirit of God and watered with grace from heaven that the church grows to display that it is the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus and points all the world to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is to be as a mirror of Christ and the unity amongst the members of the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity. The church made up of many individual members, made alive, bearing fruit, united as one body, reflecting to a lost world the substance or the reality of the triune God. Pointing to Him and His provision, pointing to others the way in which they too might become members of this family, this one body of which Christ is the head. I pray that God would grant grace to us that this would be a reality in this local body. I love our fellowship together. I love our oneness. And I pray that God will enable us and be eager to maintain that unity. And to those who are outside the body, may our unity and love one for another, showcase to those that are lost what great things God does. The power of God in the salvation of souls. Well, if you are one who is still struggling with self-help and find no relief in it from the burden of sin, if you are one that the Spirit has convicted of sin, given eyes to see the need of unity, of reconciliation with Christ and the people of God, desirous of the bond of peace, and go to the Word and read and reread Ephesians 1-7. through
through 3 and see what God has done. See what God has done. Find answers to each and every need that a lost and dying sinner has. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Spirit. Thank you that we have been united to Christ. That we've been united to the, to the vine. That we might be branches that bear fruit. Lord, and that fruit might produce in us humility, gentleness, patience, love for one another. Lord, draw us ever closer as a, as a local body here and draw us closer to members of the church, the, the body of Christ throughout this whole world. Lord, help us to love each other, to be humble in the way that we deal with each other. Lord, to be gentle in the way that we approach each other. Lord, give us patience knowing that we are still sinners, saved sinners, Lord, redeemed sinners, but we still deal with the remainders of indwelling sin. Help us to be long-suffering to each other. Lord, to stand for truth, yes. Lord, may we always stand for truth, but do it with gentleness, patience, love, and with humble hearts. Lord, we thank you for Christ who made it possible that we could be drawn to you. Thank you for the work of the Spirit in enlightening us. Lord, giving us eyes to see. Lord, giving us the ability to, to see you in the Word. Lord, and be with us throughout this week. Help us to, to showcase your workmanship to others. Lord, help us to, to walk, to conduct ourselves worthy of the calling with which we've been called. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.